0: Hello, humans, hello, humans. It's me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Rodeo Radio, not Rodeo, Radio, Ellie. How are you all? I am thrilled to be back. It has been, it has been uh, three weeks since I've been sitting in this seat talking to this microphone, okay? I mean, uh, I'm back after two pre- quote unquote previously recorded shows in a row. Um, but you have me back now in real time. Relatively, I mean, I'm I am taping the show for airing on June 11 and 12, but we're real close to those those dates, so don't worry about that. And I love talking to you, human to human. I am thrilled to be here, and I have missed you. Okay, we are on the uh, we are on the cusp of show number 230. If you can believe that, wow. Um, And this exercise, this act of me talking to you every week has become darn important to me. I continue to be incredibly grateful that the station owner, Chad Larson, who is just a big teddy bear of a man, let me tell you that, has faith in me. And he has faith in my work and he believes in this show, um, what may be the only, and I mean that, only radio show in America that talks about idealism and highlights idealist humans working to make the world better. So thank you, Chad, and thank you, Brett, my is here today, who I just adore, and everybody else at this station for supporting this show and me. Um, and of course, we have a great show. Uh, the big interview is with uh, Cheryl Turner, who is the Executive Director of Global Rights for Women. You'll really enjoy hearing about the incredible work they're doing to protect women and girls from domestic violence. And uh, in the C Block, I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. But let's begin with this week's featured idealist. You know, I try, I don't succeed every week, but most weeks I feature an idealist, either a person or an organization. And this week it's an organization. It's a nonprofit create created out of great <clears throat> tragedy. Tragedies that we keep being reminded of, unfortunately. Um, Uvalde is one of those tragedies. But I am talking about uh, the San- I'm talking about Sandy Hook Promise, a nonprofit uh, which was founded by two parents, Mark Borden and Nicole Hockley, who lost children in the Sandy Hook uh, school shooting that occurred on December 14, 2012. Mark lost his son, Daniel, and Nicole lost her son, Dylan, that day. All told, on that horrific day in December of 2012, a total of 28 people were murdered. Including twenty children, twenty kindergartens and first, no first and sec, first and fourth graders. But I mean, young kids. And in the wake of that tragedy, Sandy Hook Promise was created with the goal of preventing future school shootings and other acts of gun violence of any kind. But particularly aimed at children and youth. It is presently Sandy Hook Promise. Presently, is an organization which attracts. Uh, somewhere between 15 to $16 million a year in donations and operating funds. And with that money, it operates a number of programs. Um, uh, this includes the, quote, Know the Signs program, which teaches youth and adults on how to prevent school violence and other harmful acts. This includes it's an initiative, okay, uh, titled uh, Start with Hello, aimed at getting students to talk to each other and to reach out to those who are alone or considered other. Now think about that. It's no, there's no way that you can ever excuse somebody going in and killing. People. I don't even don't even start down that road. But think of time and again and again and again and again what we hear about the shooter. You know, he usually it's a boy, a male. He was alone, you know. He had very few friends, if any. He he kept to himself. Um, he had you know violent uh, you know violent tendencies, and nobody ever said a word about it because nobody nobody interacted with him. all right? and so their program start with hello. The Sandy Hook Promise program start with hello is aimed at getting students to go and talk to everyone to talk to others to it's about inclusion it's about as i was reading about this program i'm like ellie this is you know this is your work it's your work what they're doing they're trying to make sure that kids are good to each other that they include people and that people kids aren't just simply known as a jock that in fact there's way more than that label and get past the labels and it's it's just um it's just pretty incredible concept and they're going into schools or training schools on how to have these programs to around inclusivity and some schools begin the school year with a, a start with hello week where everything is intentional intentionality intentional about students getting to know each other sandy hook promise also has a program named say something which teach which teaches middle and high school students to recognize the warning signs of someone who is at risk of hurting themselves or others, and how to alert a trusted adult of that. The goal is for students to be, quote, upstanders rather than, quote, bystanders. This is a program that schools can teach their students. It's offered free of charge. And the Sandy Hook Promise website, it includes a page titled Impact, okay, which is pretty darn impressive. Um, the uh, the organization reports that, there, that more than 18 million students and adults have been trained on the Know the Signs uh, program, know the signs of somebody that is thinking of taking their life or the lives of others. They list that nine planned school shootings have been prevented through their work, Sandy Hook Promise, along with preventing more than 80 other acts of violence. They also state on their web, 39 confirmed lives were saved through crisis intervention. Among the statistics cited... In Sandy Hook Promise's annual report, is that firearms are the leading cause of death for children under the age of 19. We just, can we just stop and think about that? Guns kill kids ages 19 and under more than anything else in America. We did that. That's because adults have been asleep at the switch. Refused, refused to even look at the switch, let alone pull it. And then uh, four out of five school shootings, at least one other person had knowledge of the attacker's plan but didn't report it. Just think about Uvalde, Uvalde again. I mean, the attacker was posting pictures of his guns, you know, online, you know, and, and talking about things. And nobody – and people saw this and nobody dropped a dime. Um, 75% of mass shooters show obvious warning signs that they're going to do something prior to the attack. Now, think about the fact that we've had enough mass school shootings. Okay, think about that, that we've had so many mass school shootings. They can can have – they have statistics. You know, what's the average or what – I mean, it's unfathomable. And for my older listeners, all right, remember I'm 65 – Don't look at though. Um, You remember we never had this stuff to contend with. I mean the only drills that we had were drop and roll because we thought maybe there might be a nuclear war. Um, But we never, ever, ever – the the phrase active shooter drill practice, I mean unbelievable. But yet every – almost every kid in America right now has to go through that kind of training. Sandy Hook Promise also operates a national crisis center where students and others can send anonymous tips about concerns they have for other people who might be thinking of taking their lives or harming someone else. More than 80,000 tips have been reported to this program, this national crisis center that Sandy Hook Promise operates, and out of that 80,000, 17 percent. 17% of those 80,000 tips were found to be credible threats of lives in danger. Thank thank God Sandy Hook Promise exists. It created out of great tragedy. Yes, horrible tragedy. You know, and I'll tell you, I was debating a little bit today uh, about what would be our featured idealist because the other contender was Matthew McConaughey. I mean you you heard his speech this week. I'm sure you heard snippets. I mean he talked for a long time because he talked about each of the victims, each of the victims in Uvalde. He gave them – he gave them a picture of life. He gave them something for us to understand about each of those people. And the one thing that he kept coming back to is that the parents and him – they wanted these lives to matter. They wanted their children to matter. In death, if not in life. And you know, that's really what this is about. It's about making everyone feel as if they matter. Can't we do that while they are alive rather than trying to do it afterwards? But I thought about McConaughey as, as the idealist of this week because he did something incredible. He has a platform Got president gave him an even bigger platform and he had credibility to come in and talk about how our elected officials are doing nothing and it's appalling. OK. All right. Well, listen. Uh, that's all I've got for you right now. Um, go go check out. I mean it's a wonderful website, Sandy Hook Promise. It's a wonderful organization. Consider doing a donation to them. Uh, they, They've got even on the website how they – Use the fund. Seventy-seven percent of the money comes in is goes towards programs. Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, rate uh, ratio of funding to uh, programs. So check it out. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Cheryl Turner uh, with Glo- uh, who is with Global Rights for Women, and you're going to enjoy that interview. Thanks a lot. A lot. We'll be back in a sec. Radio. Lovely AM 950. Okay, it's time for the big interview. (laughs) And I have a guest. I have a wonderful guest. Her name is Cheryl Thomas. She is the founding director of Global Rights for Women. Since 1993, Cheryl has worked with partners from around the world to promote women's human rights and achieve effective systemic and legal reform to end violence against women and girls. She is the recipient of a number of wonderful, prestigious awards. And in 2011, she was recognized by Newsweek magazine as one of 150 women who shake the world. That's a great, great honor. Cheryl Thomas, welcome to LA 2.0. How are you today?
1: I'm great. Thanks so much
0: for having me, Allie. Oh, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for, you know, I found out about uh, your organization a couple of months ago. And as soon as I found out about it, I'm like, I need to have your organization <laughs> on my show. Um, and, you know, and I'll tell you, Cheryl, there's a little, you know, you know, I'm transgender. Okay. And yeah. I transitioned, what, uh, uh, in 2009. And I've yeah. got to tell you, Cheryl, I had no, no idea. Okay.
1: Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah. I had no, you know, of course I heard about domestic violence and all, but that was something totally foreign. Mm -hmm. Never, never did I ever have to worry about my physical safety with any intimate partner that I ever had when I presented as a man. Yeah. Yeah. And now, you know, now I'm, although with this voice not matching the appearance, trust me, not many dates coming my way. But, <laughs> but I will tell you, okay, I will tell you, um, certainly, as I, you know, as I think about dating, as I talk to various people, right at the forefront of the mind, will this man hurt me? That's right, you know, right. so right? Yeah,
1: that's to be. Yeah.
0: So, all right. So. Tell us about Global Rights for Women. How did it come about? I mean, you have a storied career in, non, in the nonprofit world. You're a lawyer on top of all of that. Um, you know why? Why did you go to the trouble of founding a brand new organization uh, to protect women and girls? You know, and and tell us about it. And what does it do?
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much again, Ellie, for having me. And uh, Global Rights for Women. It, we're we're really honored to be on the show. So. The reason I founded this organization, along with 40 others, by the way, I just would say in the Minneapolis community, we, we just really felt that the mission of the organization to work with partners around the world and we include Minnesota in that uh, to achieve effective systemic and legal reform on violence against women. It's uh, a mission that is so so important, and not a lot of advocacy in this space. So we looked around and said, "This is this has to happen. We just have to have a nonprofit." organization that's laser focused on ending violence against women and girls uh, around the world it's the greatest human rights violation i think the most pervasive in the world it affects you know uh, at least half the global population in devastating devastating ways and levels and we are situated in Minnesota in a really privileged place to address this uh, human rights abuse. And I can talk about that a little bit more if you want. Yeah, go, kind of, yeah
0: go ahead. Why yeah, Why okay. Minnesota? Why is it so special? Yeah, a
1: couple reasons. <clears throat> I, th- Minnesota is a place with a history of, first of all, just exceptional leadership on women's human rights and violence against women and girls. We opened the first shelter in the world in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, Sharon Rice Vaughn was a dear friend and colleague before she died a few years ago. She opened Women's Advocates. That in itself, you know, just women uh, reaching out to each other and naming this abuse that so many were, were uh, experiencing, domestic violence. created huge leadership in our state. That was 1972. That was so far ahead of every place else in the world, other than possibly the UK, which was also on a journey like this, but also Duluth. We use the Duluth model in our work here at Global Rights for Women. It's an intuitive model. It was created again in the late 70s, early 80s by Ellen Pence. Uh, Our director of international training, Melissa Skaya was a mentee of hers. And we work with those, those people, men and women, who conceived of and started to implement the Duluth model of coordinated community response so to the, end violence against women. So, so the Duluth yeah, model
0: it, is to work with people who abuse um, women, right?
1: You know, the Duluth model is multidimensional. It's a lot of things. And okay. yes, working with violent uh, people, mo- mostly men who commit domestic violence. Um, is central to the Duluth model, but it also is a very um, focused model of community coordination. So you can't just have a law to prohibit domestic violence, expect that to be implemented effectively enforced effectively, effectively, uh, known throughout the community and understood throughout the community. The agencies of the community, and not just the legal system, Need to work together to make sure such these laws are very very important to set community standards, but they have to be really carefully enforced, and and uh, survivors' voices have to lead the way in, in doing that, and to make sure that the goals of uh, law prohibiting violence are met, and then that's victim safety and offender accountability.
0: Okay, great. No, I mean, I you know. I think that the general population hears the phrase domestic violence and I think that many people understand it's a mainly directed towards women but I mean also male partners can be uh, the the um, uh, the survivors of domestic violence as well um, yes and and uh, but but i I just I, I think that for many people it's kind of you know, it's someone else, okay, it's, you know, some other person that's going to experience this, and the re- the reality, though, is that anybody, anybody can be the victim, and I don't like to, I should not be using that word, the survivor of domestic violence, right?
1: Right, and, you know, I use these words interchangeably just to, to say, <clears throat> so, Ellie, uh, victim and survivor, victim's an important term for re- a number of reasons, and so is survivor, so I think we all need to, be thinking about people who have suffered these kinds of abuses and assaults in, in one way or the other, just listening to what an individual person or a group of people want to be called, want to be referred to. But right. yes, I, I agree that anybody can be a victim survivor of domestic violence. We, what we do know, and this is solid research now that's gone on for you know four decades, is that Primarily, it is women who are the victims of domestic violence by their male intimate partners. Right. So that that is the reality. Uh, The the issue is one of power dynamics. So vulnerable.
0: It's all about control, right?
1: Right, power and control, Ellie. Exactly right.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, Cheryl, um, we've got to take a quick break here. Okay. And when we come Thanks. back, I want to hear more about uh, Global Rights for Women's work, all right? And then, okay. uh, you know, I'll ask you uh, towards the end of the interview, uh, what made you an idealist? Could you obviously are. All right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs>
0: all right. All right, listeners. You've been speak- I've been talking with Cheryl Thomas, who's the founding director of Global Rights for Women. When we come back from our break, we'll talk with Cheryl a little bit more. And, and, uh, and then, you know, we'll go on with the show. Okay. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. We'll be back in a sec. We're back. LE 2.0 Radio. I'm just here rocking out, listening to my, (laughs) listening to The Cure. Okay. Uh, We have uh, Cheryl Thomas on the line. We've been talking with her. She is the founding director of Global Rights for Women. um, And uh, the organization's coming up on its 30th anniversary, uh, founded in 1993. Cheryl, your organization, Global Rights for Women, um, does work both here in the u.s as well as internationally is that right
1: that's right and i just have to say ellie before we go on here global rights for women was actually founded in 2014 oh so i, ha- I have worked in the area of violence against women and uh women's human rights since 1993 so just ah. to clarify that no yep. hey
0: thank you and and that yeah. just goes back to ellie krug not Not being able to read well. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. So – and the reason I want to ask about international is I'll tell you a very, very quick story and the listeners as well. You know, um, so as I I said, I'm transgender and I, uh, you know, I don't ordinarily share it. But I mean I've had gender confirmation surgery. And as it turned out, you know, I, on the, on, you know, the day after the surgery, there's not a whole lot you can do. I mean, you're like laying in bed. There's nothing, you know. And oh, yeah. so I started okay. reading a book called Half the Sky oh, uh, by yeah. Nicholas Kristoff yeah. and Christoph Christoph. Cheryl, Cheryl Wooden. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that book starts out with a paragraph that says, by our estimate, 60 million girls, females are missing in the world. You know, women and girls, either through, yep. you know, murder or through infanticide or through starvation of girls because the family favors the boys. and They don't have enough to feed all the kids and all of that stuff. I just got to yep. tell you, Cheryl, that was like not the time to be reading that kind of book.
1: <laughs> oh, my, my goodness. I can imagine.
0: So, but, but it's a wonderful book because it's filled with stories of resiliency of women across the world, yes. uh, you know. Fighting all kinds of odds, right, and succeeding. I mean, just it's a it's a powerful book about women. And yes, it is. I'm so grateful that I, I read it. I really am. So, yes. Tell us what what are you doing internationally?
1: Yeah, so I would say most of our programs are international. That is one of the areas that we thought was so in need of more resources and attention from. Places that have experience and expertise in systemic and legal reform on violence against women. So Global Rights for Women, and this has been true throughout my whole career working in women's human right to be free from violence, receives far more requests than we can possibly respond to With from folks around the world, nonprofits, intergovernmental institutions like the United Nations, uh, other like working groups, <laughs> parliament working groups on help us draft laws, help us amend laws, help us figure out how to effectively enforce laws on violence against women and girls. Now, the most pervasive forms are domestic violence and sexual assault. So that's what we focus on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just a huge number of laws have been passed over the 30 years I've been working in this area around the world. It was it's really been striking, and and you know that's your, what what you're talking about, Ellie. It's the resiliency of women. They just keep working at that to get those community standards in place that solidify their human right to be free from violence. But now our work at Global Rights for Women is really digging in with our partners here in Minnesota and around the world how do we get this this these you know lofty language of the laws the national local international laws to become a reality in women's lives to really really keep women and girls safe and hold violent offenders accountable so we we work with, we just got back, for example, from Vietnam, a team in Vietnam uh, was training there on a prosecutor manual that we created with the United Nations to build the capacity of prosecutors to better enforce their criminal laws on rape and domestic violence. We also... Just got back from Georgia, the Republic of Georgia in the caucuses where we've been working on a risk assessment tool with the police there at their request to help them identify when Perpetrators are the most dangerous when they present the risk of killing or seriously harming their partners. And that's something we're very proud of, creating these risk assessment tools that, again, were created here in the United States originally decades ago. And now uh, many communities around the world are looking to create those tools also.
0: Well, and if uh, let's make sure we uh, plug the organization. So if a listener wants to, first of all, you're a nonprofit, right? And so you do take, oh, yes. <laughs> you do take donations. Um, oh, yes, we welcome them, of all course. All right, so <laughs> why don't you give us the website before I, I – sometimes I forget to ask this, so I'm asking you right now. Uh, give us the website and how people can learn more about Global Rights for Women.
1: Well, thank you for that. Our website is www.globalrightsforwomen, the whole name of our organization, Global Rights for Women.org. Um, uh, yeah. So you can go on the website and see a lot of our work. One thing I really encourage folks to do, it's just been a hugely uh, compelling program. And yesterday we had uh, one of the series of our Valiant Voices. Uh, We have, we bring in the voices of women and men from around the world to talk about these issues of, of violence and subjugation of women and girls. And we have these series through, they're free. You can join them on, online. Uh, Yesterday we talked with three experts from around the country about can, the subject was can violent men change? And these particular folks have, these three folks, Melissa Skaya, our Director of International Training Scott Miller up in Duluth and Lester Douglas from Atlanta have decades of experience working with men who've been convicted of violent offenses, and these programs are aimed at behavior change. and It's fascinating to listen to these people. So now we're actually getting requests for a third a third series. We've had two with, with digging into that issue, and we've had. People from all over the world join these conversations. So, yeah, jump on our website, www.globalrightsforwomen.org, and uh, sign up for our webinars, donate, volunteer. We have lots of volunteers, students, law students, all kinds of volunteers, yeah.
0: And you have a you have a fundraiser coming up, or an annual meeting on September twenty second, and Anita Hill is going to be speaking there. Yes, right.
1: Yes, we're just thrilled about that. Anita Hill's new book, Believing, is really just a, a kind of a, a description of why Global Rights for Women exists. She digs into the culture of violence in our own country and around the world and how that has so harmed not only women, but everyone. Just right. this culture of deeply entrenched, systematically enforced, truly, violence against women and girls. Yeah.
0: yeah, and I fear that it's only going to get worse once the Supreme Court's done with uh, what it's going to be doing in June, you know?
1: Yeah, I, I am very distressed about that another step towards depriving women of their right to be autonomous, yeah. their right to enjoy their, their all their human rights and be in charge of their own bodies. That that's just essential. We can't go forward without yeah. that. We can't solve these problems. Right.
0: Well, uh, tell us, Cheryl, what made you an idealist? OK, how did how did this you know, how did you get to be so – I mean, you you have a long pedigree of working in the nonprofit world and of wanting to champion uh, the protection of women and girls. How? What was it in your background or your experience growing up that made you idealistic?
1: You know, I, I just would start my answer to that question, Ellie. I, I come from a very – I come from a privileged background. I I'm a white – woman living in the United States of America. Now, we, women are oppressed here, that's true, but I also had access to resources. I was able to go to law school. I really took that very seriously, the human right to access to justice. And I, I, you know, I feel like I, being an idealist is kind of the opposite from being uh Cynical <laughs> idealism is the opposite of cynicism, and I—I—I I, I, I guess it's just in my nature. Certainly, my upbringing, my family was uh, were just all social justice af- a- activists, and I want to live. I don't want to live in a place of cynicism. I want to live in a place in a space of idealism, where I continue to work towards. The principles of the full realization of human rights, access to justice for all people, the well-being of all people, that's the, the space I want to live in. And there's lots of people like me out there. And the, just joining with them has been just a great honor and joy in my life.
0: The, that's that's fantastic. The problem is that often idealists don't have power. <laughs> You know, <laughs>
1: that's true. Yeah. Well, and that's true. With, you know, So many women, you know, the, the lack of power, the lack of resources. I wish I had the statistic at my hand. I meant to get it at my fingertips. The amount of money that is dedicated to reforms and advocacy that changes the dynamic of inequality in our world is minuscule, just minuscule. It's just a tiny, tiny percent of, for example, the philanthropic funds that are given to dedicate to women's human rights. So you're right Uh, there. We don't have a lot of power, but that's changing that I have witnessed it firsthand over 30 years. And I'm not, I don't, you know, kid myself that this isn't a very, very long struggle that will not be, our goals will not be achieved in my lifetime, but they, they we we need to continue on this path and envision a world that is very different from the one that we are now oh. and work toward it toward it
0: right yeah it's just it's i mean i'm 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 full in with you i'm not a cynic that's for sure but i just um it it just it you know i mean just all we have to do is look at like what what's happening in afghanistan and and i just I, you know and Women.
1: Afghanistan, Afghanistan I, I, I would say, um, really over the last decade since I've been working in this field, uh, that was maybe the deepest you know, black plate hole that I found myself in, just uh, in complete despair about the re-enslavement of the Afghani women. There's 20 yep. million, over 20 million women in Afghanistan. They have been now. They're no longer in the he- headlines. They are... Uh, increasingly policies are being passed that can uh, enforce their enslavement to men there. So I I hear you, and I, I just live with the idea that both things are true, Ellie. I also know that when I started this work in 1992, very few countries' jurisdictions had any effective laws on domestic violence and rape. And now there are very few countries in the world uh, that do not have those laws. So there are, we see, you know, the most glaring headlines of despair, and often we don't see the incredible accomplishments human rights activists and women's rights activists are achieving around the world. Right. We just, we just don't see, them. but I have, I've been, a, I've had the uh, front row seat to it.
0: Well, listen, Cheryl Thomas, uh, it has been a pleasure to talk to you and I just want to applaud you for the work that you're doing to protect women and Thank girls. You. Thank you. Um, I just, uh, just keep at it. Okay. And, Thank you, Elliot. You know,
1: Thank you for giving this this platform to amplify amplify our voice. I really appreciate
0: it. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And good luck to you. Okay.
1: Thanks very much. I'm
0: here if I can ever help you. That's for sure. All right.
1: Wonderful. Okay. Thank you again.
0: All right, listeners. We've been talking with Cheryl Thomas, uh, who is the uh, director of global, uh, the founding director for Global Rights for Women. And uh, go check out their website at glo- uh, globalrightsforwomen.org. Um, and uh, read up about the organization. When we come back, I'm going to do my C-Block, talk about a number of different things, including an incredibly difficult thing I found out recently this week. we will be back in a second. Thanks. And we're back. L.A. 2.0 Radio. Uh, check out uh, the Global Rights for Women organization. I think that's very worthwhile. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Okay, now listen, a couple of housekeeping things. One is, you may recall uh, several – well, maybe three or four months ago, I had Dana Nelson on the line. She was dying of cancer. As far as I know, she is still hanging in there. Um, but she was uh, – she's been work. she had been working with Compassion and Choices um, about – um, you know, medical aid in dying. And I just want you to know that Compassion and Choice is Rainbow Health, Lavender Magazine, and the First Unitarian Society. They're, they're sponsoring a video and then a um, panel discussion. The, on uh, Tuesday, June fourteenth, at six thirty, at First Unitarian Society, uh, you can you can go live stream. You don't have to go all the way down to Minneapolis to see it. It's titled Bob's Choice: Colon and LGBTQ man, Plus Man's Death with Dignity Journey. So it follows this man, Bob Fuller, who dies in in uh, Seattle with medical aid um, because in the right in under Washington law to control his destiny. So go go check that out, okay? And I I'm very worthwhile. Also, if you have an interest, okay, you may or may not, but if you have an interest, I am speaking. I, I don't get to speak very often in public. I am speaking on Sunday morning, like like you know tomorrow morning, at, at First Unit. Excuse me, at um, Shepherd of the Hill Presbyterian Church in Chaska. I'm going to be talking about me as an idealist and talk about the work that I do and a little bit of my story. So if you can come, it's at 9.15 on uh, Sunday, the 12th, at Shepherd of the Hill uh, Presbyterian Church in Chaska. Okay, now I want to talk about something that has been really bugging me a lot. So this week, um, I gave a talk to a number of federal employees. They were a gathering of people from various and different agencies um, and it included a number of people from the Air National Guard and the Minnesota National Guard. And uh, they were there in uniform and, and uh, lovely people, OK? And I get, my talk was Gray Everything, which is about human inclusivity, about being good to everybody and, and about a tool set. It's a tool set on how to be welcoming to people who are different or other. And I've got to tell you, I mean, I got done with the talk. That wonderful audience, about 60 people in the audience. Everybody was very engaged in all of that stuff. And as is the case when and, – and it's, you know, I'm finally going back live and so I was live in the room with these people and as I was getting ready to leave, getting some things packed up, three of the Army uh, uh, Minnesota National Guard folks came up to talk to me. Um, again, in, in fatigues and uniform and, and you know, they talked to me – you know, they liked the talk and all of that stuff and there was a sergeant and a major and then a colonel. And uh, the colonel, though, then at that point, as, um, after we'd been talking for a little bit, he said, Ellie, i got to tell you about something that's really bothering me and bothers all, uh, all of us at the guard. He said, Ellie, do you know that Pride won't let us be in their parade? Pride won't let the guard be in their parade. And, I'm, and t- I'm inferring from that that they won't allow them to have a booth at Pride either. And I said, oh, my God, I had no idea. And they were like, well, you know, do you know why, Ellie? We don't really understand why they don't want us to be in the parade. And and I'm not exaggerating. This man, the colonel, he was on the verge of tears over it because he said, Ellie, it really hurts. It really hurts. And then he said, he said, Ellie, I would die for you. I would die for you, Ellie. Oh, my God, it just so touched my heart. And I don't know why I, I, I reached out to Twin Cities Pride because I wanted to find out why they're excluding the guard. <clears throat> Nobody called me back, so I just want to make sure that you know that you understand that I tried to get uh, Pride side Twin Cities' Pride's side on this. Now, I know, okay, there are varying views about our military and all of that stuff. I'm going to give you the Ellie Krug take on America's military, and here it is. They keep me alive. They protect me. I want you, I mean, let's make sure we all understand. In some countries in this world right now, I wouldn't be alive. I would have been executed by the government. In other countries in this world, there's no way I could ever be public. I could be arrested. I could be imprisoned in many countries in this world. But the United States government, the, the army, our armed services, they protect me and give me the ability to live my life authentically as who I am. And I think they deserve to be in pride. I do. I think they deserve great respect. These are humans putting their lives online, not just for me, but for everybody else. Okay, now, I want to make clear, I'm not telling you not to go to Pride, all right? I'm not telling you to boycott. I'm going to be... I will be at Pride. I'll be at the AM 950 uh, booth on Saturday afternoon, uh, Pride weekend. I will be there, okay? But I'm going to tell you, if you see somebody, one of the Pride, you know, organizers with a clipboard walking around, do me a favor. We ask them, how come you won't let the National Guard in your parade? Will you do that for me, please? Because I, you know, and then come tell me at the booth. Because I don't know if I'm going to get an answer any other way. Um... You know, so just it. it th- I mean, this colonel. I mean, he's like Ellie. What? It's all about. It. Isn't it pride supposed to be about inclusion? And they're not including. They're excluding us. You know, I. I know, and and then we have the the issue about the police. I'm not prepared to talk about. I, I actually. I actually support the police generally, okay? I absolutely do. Most police officers, they go into the profession, just like in the service. They go into profession to do good. To, to, you know, and Right now, the National Guard, and I'm jumping around, they're sandbagging up at International Falls, okay? Because uh, there's flooding up there. So, all right, just check it out, okay? All right, and uh, come, see me at the, come see me at Pride, okay? See me. I'll be there. I'll be there with my dog, Jack. I'm going to bring Jack this year, and we'll see how that goes. Okay, everyone. Well, listen, uh, it's been a great show. Brett Johnson, you are quite wonderful, as always, as my producer. Audience, listen, I'm thrilled to be back talking to you. I'll be back next week, as far as I know. Okay, it's going to get a little bumpy later on, again, because i got a lot going on. but, But at any rate, know that I care about you, all right? And between now and when you hear my voice next, will you do me this favor? Will you go out and be good to someone? Go out and try and make the world a better place. Even a small act. Small act. Helping somebody, you know, get, get their groceries to their car. But go and do something to make the world better. Okay? Thanks. See you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.